Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up, the opioid epidemic has seen a resurgence with overdose deaths up more than 35% in the past year. And like many things in the pandemic era, a pivot to innovative uses of technology may hold the key to bringing those numbers down. Also this morning, mobile gaming now represents nearly two-thirds of the video game market, a trend largely being driven by women. We'll have details on special events and Halloween fun during the month of October at the Hancock Historical Museum. Sarah Sisser will tell us what's happening. And in our ongoing Keeping the Faith series, grown-ups aren't the only ones who experience the challenges and hardships of life. Children, too, can take comfort that the Lord is with them in their own times of trial as well. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Wednesday, October 6th, 2021. Today is Come and Take It Day. It is also Garlic Lovers Day, Mad Hatter Day, National Badgers Day, Badger Day, National Coaches Day, National Noodle Day, National PA Day, National Walk to School Day, National Plus Size Appreciation Day, and it is National Coffee with a Cup Day. So reasons to celebrate so uh here is the thing is trick-or-treating safe this year or is it not uh this is the first thing out of the gate this morning that we want to make sure that we uh are, are absolutely clear on among the first things that you need to know this morning the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day the centers for disease control and prevention says trick-or-treating can be done safely if you take proper precautions now, you remember, and we were talking about this, what, just yesterday or Monday? Uh, earlier this week, we were talking with the Confectioners Association about the fact that uh, trick-or-treat is back, Halloween is back, and all of its spooktacular glory this year. Even the CD, And we mentioned even the CDC has given their thumbs up, given their blessing to uh, the Halloween festivities. But now uh, they are... I don't want to say revising that or, or walking that back, but they say you do need to take proper precautions. For one thing, you should avoid direct contact with trick-or-treaters. Um, hand out your treats outdoors if possible. Well, I think that's kind of a, an ongoing thing. You don't invite the trick-or-treaters into your home. How many times have we told our kids, don't go in anyone's home? They do this outdoors, certainly. They say set up a station with individually bagged treats for kids to take. Individually bagged treats. That sounds like an awful lot of work. (laughs) Individually bagged treats. Especially if you live like on Main Street here in town. They get literally hundreds of trick-or-treaters. That is an awful lot of work. But that's what the CDC recommends. Um, Wash your hands before handing treats. Before handling treats. And wear a mask, which <laughs> I guess at Halloween we do that anyway. Uh, last week, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, director of the CDC, says if you're able to trick-or-treat outdoors, uh, it is absolutely safe to, uh, to do a comprehensive list of the CDC's Halloween-related safety measures can be found on their website. So, just want to clarify that, yes, the CDC has given their blessing, but with a number of caveats and they've also posted COVID-19 guidance for the holidays. Uh, And that is something we were talking about just yesterday 
and joking that it was pretty much the same advice as as last year. Have gatherings outdoors. If you're going to be indoors, throw open the windows, get plenty of of air circulation, wear masks, social distance, etc., etc., etc. Well, the CDC removed their holiday guidance as of yesterday morning. Um, The agency tells reporters at The Hill that the guidelines were outdated and had been uploaded by accident. They plan to post new recommendations for the holidays in the coming weeks. So forget everything we said yesterday about holiday gatherings. (laughs) Never mind. All apparently outdated information. But what what's what's going to be the difference? What is going to be the difference? I mean, the only change. Well, no, that's not even a change. We had the vaccines last year, right? Uh, at, by Thanksgiving, we had at least some people were, were getting vaccinated, I think, by by last Thanksgiving. So I'm not sure what has changed. But I guess we'll find out. In the coming weeks, according to the uh, according to the CDC. Uh, speaking of buzzworthy stories related to the pandemic, did you happen to catch this? ESPN anchor Sage Steele has been removed from the air, at least for a few days, after an appearance on a podcast by former NFL quarterback Jay Cutler. And in that podcast, she criticized the cable sports network's vaccine mandate and... Uh, In another part of the interview, question former President Barack Obama's identifying as black. So let me start at the beginning here. During the podcast, the SportsCenter co-host revealed that she has been vaccinated against COVID-19, but she did not want to be. She said she only got the vaccine because of ESPN's mandate, corporate mandate. She said, I didn't want to do it, but I work for a company that mandates it, and I have until September 30th to get it done or I'm out. She also called the vaccine mandate sick and scary and said she'd felt emotional and defeated when she had to get it. So that was the first thing that raised the ire of the worldwide leader in sports. Uh, Sage Steele also later in the uh, podcast, um, who, by the way, I should mention Sage Steele is uh, biracial like uh, former President Obama. But she commented on the former president choosing black as his ethnicity for the recently concluded census, saying, quote, I think that it's fascinating considering his black dad was nowhere to be found while his white mom and grandmother raised him. So those comments uh, generated some controversy as well. Uh, She released an apology saying, I know my recent comments created controversy for the company, and I apologize. We are in the midst of an extremely challenging time that impacts all of us. And it's more critical than ever that we communicate constructively and thoughtfully. So I'm not sure exactly what that means in the context of of an apology uh, for uh, for comments. I don't know. She was expressing an opinion uh, with the uh, on both of those things. It was she was just expressing her opinion. But apparently, uh, ESPN frowns on things like that. So. Uh, anyway, she has been uh, removed from the air. Uh, no word on how long that removal. They aren't calling it a suspension, I guess. They just have removed her from the air, at least for a few days. So we'll see how long that lasts. We'll see how, 
see if that story has legs. Uh, people will be talking about it on social media and so on. So there he goes. This is uh, kind of interesting. Again, among the first things you need to know today, uh, the uh, new term of the Supreme Court uh, just uh, just got underway. And um, Americans are feeling less positive about the Supreme Court than they have in a while. A new poll from the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg Public Policy Center finds that more than one third of the American population agrees that it might be better to do away with the high court or restrain it, at least. Specifically, 34 percent in this survey said that it might be better to get rid of the court if it issues too many rulings that Americans disagree with. And 38% say that they would favor the idea of Congress being able to pass legislation restricting the high court from ruling on certain topics and issues. Now, what that tells me as I read this, what that tells me is that 38% don't understand (laughs) the balance of power and the checks and balances that were written into the Constitution. I mean, how would that work if you eliminate the highest court in the land, who then settles legal disputes at the highest level if you have no Supreme Court or if the or if Congress is able to tell the Supreme Court, no, you can't uh, rule on this issue or that issue or what have you. I just that's <laughs> you talk about the height of dysfunction. Um, in any event, the previous high mark for potentially doing away with the court was 23 percent back in 2013. That is now 11 percentage points higher than that. The previous high for potentially restraining the court was 28% in 2018, and now it's 10 percentage points higher than that now. The dissatisfaction, by the way, was seen across the partisan spectrum. 33% of liberals agree that it might be better to get rid of the court. 28% of conservatives, and as in uh, terms of restraining the court's ability to rule in certain cases that had the support of 37% of liberals, 31% of conservatives. Again, that just tells me that there is a a substantial number of people who just don't understand the the function of the Supreme court and uh, the whole idea of checks and balances in the system. I, it's just crazy to me, but I don't know. Maybe somebody can explain it in a way that I'd understand. I'm just a simple guy, but that doesn't seem like a really bright idea to me somehow. And uh, lastly, among the first things you need to know this morning, and this may be the most important story to start your day as you are getting up, starting your morning, getting ready to have your morning bowl of cereal. Now, fans of Wendy's Frosty can have them for breakfast, too. The fast food chain has teamed up with Kellogg's to create, are you ready for this? Wendy's Frosty Chocolatey Cereal. (laughs) Wendy's Frosty Chocolatey Cereal. In a press release, the company says the cereal contains crispy, cocoa-coated round cereal bites, along with chocolate-flavored marshmallows. (laughs) And it will be in store shelves. Uh, it will be on store shelves in December uh, when the boxes start appearing on store shelves. They will include a coupon for a free frosty from Wendy's. So there's that. <laughs> that is exactly what we need. 
That is exactly what we need is a new breakfast cereal <laughs> inspired by Wendy's Frosties. <laughs> uh, you talk about hyped up kids when they uh, head to school <laughs> in the morning. There you go. Some of the uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Wednesday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast, partly cloudy today with a high of 79, a chance of showers tonight, a low of 65. Finley Municipal Court will be holding its fourth annual Safe Surrender Day on Thursday. Individuals with active bench warrants who report to the court on that day will not be arrested. Instead, those who take advantage of the opportunity will work with designated court staff to resolve their legal issues. During the event last year, the court helped 86 people get a total of 120 bench warrants released. Learn more about the Safe Surrender event on our website. Operation Ohio Knows is the state's largest ever human trafficking sting. Among those charged were Columbus firefighter Andrew Bartonikowski, music teacher at St. Matthew Catholic School in Gahanna, Randall Frazier, and a city councilman from the town of Illyria near Cleveland named Mark Jesse. The Columbus Division of Fire called the charges against its firefighter disappointing and not acceptable, and an administrative investigation is underway into his actions. The music teacher has since been fired from his job. That's Owen and Yolanda Harris reporting. Get more on the sting on our website. The Hancock Historical Museum's Historic Homes Tour is coming up this weekend in Findlay. Sarah Sisser, executive director of the museum, says the tour will feature six homes this year. And the tour is very walkable this year, so you can easily walk from one home to the other. The homes are located on South Main Street and Glendale Avenue. She says the homes range in age from the late 1800s to the late 1920s and feature a wide variety of architectural styles. The tour is on Sunday with a special preview for a limited number of guests on Saturday. Get more on our website. The Ohio State Highway Patrol and Ohio Department of Natural Resources are reminding drivers about the increase in deer-related traffic crashes this time of year. Since 2016, there have been more than 100,000 deer-related crashes on Ohio roadways. Nearly half of the crashes occurred in October, November, and December. Hancock County is one of the top counties in the state for deer-related crashes. The Highway Patrol says if you see a deer on the roadway, slow down, but do not swerve because swerving could cause an even worse crash. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Well, according to the CDC, over the last year and a half during the COVID-19 pandemic, the opioid epidemic has continued to grow with the number of fatal opioid overdoses up 36% from the 1st of December 2019 to the end of November 2020. Joining us to discuss is Dr. Joseph R. Volpicelli, founder of the Volpicelli Center and executive director of the Institute of Addiction Medicine. And Dr. Volpicelli, I'll start with a big question, the one that everybody has a theory about, but I want to hear it from you as an expert in the field. Why? Why are opioid overdoses on the rise? Well, there's several reasons for that. One is the increased availability of opioids, particularly the synthetic opioid fentanyl, which is very potent and responsible for many of the overdose deaths. Secondly, during the COVID pandemic, people's access to treatment has been disrupted and also their access to uh, peer support to help them in recovery. And finally, the COVID pandemic has caused increased stress and anxiety in individuals. And for some people, 
that's led them to turn to drugs and alcohol as a way of coping with that stress. Now, obviously, this has been an issue that has predated the pandemic. I mean, uh, all the way back in 2007, unintentional drug poisoning became the leading cause of injury death in Ohio, and that has continued to be the case each year since. But has the pandemic uh, kind of opened up a new layer uh, on this? I mean, you talked about the, the reasons why this has been on the rise. Is this a whole new layer that you anticipate will be an issue moving forward, or are we going to see some of these things kind of uh, take care of themselves as the pandemic eases? Well, we would hope to see it ease off, but so far we haven't seen any sign of it. Mm-hmm. About a third of the country right now is suffering from severe anxiety or depression. And most of these individuals are not getting any professional help. And unfortunately, often these folks will turn to drugs and alcohol as a way of coping. Yeah. So I, I don't see in the near term any hint that we're going to have less of a problem with uh, opiate addiction. Now, what's interesting here, and the and the reason we want to have this conversation, you are actually leveraging digital technology, AI, and all of this in the treatment of opioid use disorder, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And how? And let me explain a little bit more why, why it's so important. That it's clear that medications can be useful in the treatment of opioid use disorders. That gives us our, our best chance of getting people better. Mm-hmm. The medicines can help reduce craving. They can reduce withdrawal symptoms and, and help prevent people relapsing to opiates. But the medicines work best in a context in which people are getting the psychotherapy. And unfortunately, many of the people who are taking medicines in their recovery are not getting the psychotherapy that they need. And that's where the digital therapeutics come in because it provides people a way of getting good cognitive behavioral approaches through an online platform that an individual can access anytime and anywhere there's an internet. So it's a very useful uh, component of recovery. And again, the the reasons why people aren't getting that uh, uh, that extra layer of, of help in their recovery uh, can be... There are any number of reasons. It might be pandemic-related where they, uh, the treatment isn't available because of the pandemic. It might be that the type of treatment is not available where they live or not easily accessible or what have you. There might be a cost issue, whatever. There are any number of reasons, and but the bottom line is this can provide uh, some of that additional therapy. And how does it work? Yeah, so digital therapeutics work by providing behavioral uh, treatment in a, uh, usually in a web-based program. Mm-hmm. The Medea program is really interesting because it acts as an expert to help teach people strategies for dealing with craving, dealing with stress, improving interpersonal relationships. And it presents the information to you in little bits and then asks for feedback from you if that was helpful. And what the Medea program has, it has the artificial intelligence engine in it so that it will tailor what it presents to you based on the feedback that it gets. So each encounter that you have with the program is really uniquely uh, uh, presented by Medea in a way that meets your needs and preferences. So how would uh, someone avail themselves of this resource? Yeah, so right now we're doing a research study to test its effectiveness. So Mm -hmm. it's not available to the public, but uh, it should be available in the fall. And so you can talk to your doctor and make sure uh, your physician has access to it but in the fall should become available. And let's speak uh, for a moment to 
uh, families and and those with a loved one who they're concerned may have an opioid use disorder. How do we identify that? What do those individuals who have that concern do? How can they help or how can they start to get help for their loved one? Yeah, so many times people slide into opiate addiction uh, because they started using opiates to, for some legitimate reason. Perhaps they have acute pain from a tooth extraction or they had a surgical procedure. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly appropriate to use opiates for acute pain. But if a person continues to use opiates beyond that point, that should raise a red flag, particularly if they're increasing the dose of the opioid or, or shopping for doctors who are willing to prescribe it. And over time, you can see behavioral changes in that person. They'll seem sedated when they're, when they're on the, the drugs, or they'll feel anxious or agitated when they don't have access to the, to the opioids. You'll see mood swings. You'll see insomnia, lack of interest. The people will seem disengaged. And you'll even notice your feelings with the person could change, that you begin not to trust the individual or make excuses for their behavior. All those should be warning signs that it's important to get your, your loved one in treatment. Again, uh, Dr. Joseph Volpicelli is the founder of the Volpicelli Center and executive director of the Institute of Addiction Medicine. We're talking about leveraging new technology in ways to help uh, make a dent, curb the opioid epidemic, which continues to be a problem and, in fact, is uh, cases on the rise uh, once again. Where do we get uh, more information? So you can go to the Arexo website. That's O-R-E-X-O.com. And then the website, there's a section devoted to uh, Medea, and you can learn more information about it there. Dr. Volpicelli, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Chris. Well, mobile gaming has become the hottest segment of the video game industry, now representing 60% of the market. And would it surprise you to learn that growth is largely being driven by women? Joining us this morning is George Petro, founder of the gaming company Play Mechanics, and Sarah Erlinson, four-time Big Buck Hunter world champion, which is one of Play Mechanics games, by the way. So, Sarah, this may probably sound sexist, but it, it really kind of goes against type, against our perceptions of gaming, especially a game like Big Buck Hunter. What is behind this trend of women in gaming? So, yeah, I don't blame you. It's definitely a male-dominated industry, but... Big Buck Hunter is a very, very social game. It was one of the original competitive arcade games out there. I'm sure you visited your local bar, restaurant, and you've seen it, and you grab a friend and play. You don't just play by yourself. And as a woman, I enjoy playing games as well and being competitive with the men. So I've owned my my own bar for over 12 years now, and it has been a must-have game since day (laughs) one. George, how deliberate is this growth in female gaming? I mean, was this something that happened organically or did companies like yours kind of set out specifically to bring more women into gaming? Um, Well, I've been making games for a really long time, basically since the the early 1980s. And we long believed that if you wanted to have the best game out there or the most popular game, you really needed to appeal to both men and women. So definitely something that we strive for, but it's easier said than done. Um, we feel very fortunate with Big Buck Hunter that we created a game um, that actually achieves that goal. And I think Sarah said that right. It's, it's because it's more social experience. 
And the interesting thing is, is when we partnered with Skills, which is a mobile competitive gaming platform, they host 2 billion tournaments a year. And of those 2 billion tournaments, 60% are participated in by women. So that's a really great validation of what we've always thought to be true in the video game business. And of course, with uh, mobile gaming, uh, access to uh, gaming is uh, easier than ever because everyone has a device. And Sarah, you're even a new mom, I understand. That busts another myth about gamers is that they just sit around all day on their screens. Obviously, you can't do that anymore if you ever did. That is exactly right because training to be a world champion buck hunter takes some serious time. I mean, I was practicing 30 to 40 hours a week, but now as a new mom, I I definitely don't have that time anymore. So I'm just loving to be able to play the skills, big buck hunter marksman on my phone. It's, I can play on my downtime during my leisure time, but still be competitive when I want. So, uh, how do women get I- involved? I mean, for, for somebody, again, we're talking specifically to women who think, hey, you know, this might be a, you know, a great pastime, something that I could uh, really get into and enjoy. What is the uh, first step? What could you uh, uh, advise? Yeah, so if you want to get involved, certainly with Big Buck Hunter uh, Marksman, or if you want to get uh, involved in any one of the other great skills apps that are out there like Blackout Bingo or Solitaire Cube, where you can compete and have that social experience, just go to games.skills.com. It's skills with a Z. All the games are there, and you just drop them on your phone and start playing. Or if you want to, if you want to see the Big Buck Hunter community in action, you know, want to watch the live stream or see all these players really go at it, just go to bigbuckhunter.com. Uh, we'll link that up on our webpage uh, because, uh, again, as we said, uh, women now representing or mobile uh, gaming representing 60 percent of the market and women are, are driving that growth. Find out what it's all about. Uh, George, Sarah, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Sarah Sisser is here from the Hancock Historical Museum. The month of, Octo- uh, month of October is a very busy month at the uh, museum. So we were just talking before we went on the air. Uh, you're getting right back into the swing of things here after your uh, uh, family leave, yes. maternity <laughs> leave there. Um, jumping right in with a busy, busy month. Yes, jumping into the deep end with Oktoberfest <laughs> uh, a couple weekends ago. And then this weekend... Um, our second largest event of the year is the Historic Homes Tour. Yeah. So we're looking forward to that as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Uh, let's kind of take things uh, in chronological order. First, the uh, Brown Bag Lunch Lecture is tomorrow. That's right. Yeah. So always the first Thursday of the month, our Brown Bag Lecture is open to the public. It's free for members. It's $3 if you're not a member. And tomorrow we have with us a graduate student from the University of Finley. She's in the Master's of Rhetoric and Re- Rhetoric and Writing Program. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been doing a collaborative uh, program with with the university for about five years now um, with that degree program. And we give them the opportunity to put some rhetorical theory in practice. So they take an item from our collections and really research it and then apply their rhetorical theory. So oftentimes hmm. they're they're discovering things that we don't know about some of the artifacts that we have huh. in the collections. Wow. So she is going to be talking about the working conditions for women in factories in the early 1900s. Hmm. Specifically, she focuses on the boss glove factory that was here in Findlay um, and what the working conditions were like there as compared to some other factories in the state of Ohio. That's uh, interesting because uh, historically, uh, obviously, Findlay has had a number of, well, still does, but have had a number of very di- uh, varied factories. Yes, uh, a lot of manufacturing and, as you mentioned, some really unique 
Yeah. Um, enterprises or businesses like the Boss Glove Manufacturing Company and mm-hmm. also um, the Mask Company, American sure, Mask Company. Yeah. So a unique history for our community. That will be a fascinating uh, lecture. And that is tomorrow. Uh, you were saying it is $3 for uh, non-members. I think if you go every month, you do the math, you could probably afford a membership. That's right. right That's there. exactly there you right. Go. <laughs> so just kind of a little plug in there. And then as you mentioned, this weekend is the Historic Homes Tour, which is back this year. And uh, I know this is something that so many people look forward to. Absolutely. It's an event that's been going on in our community um, for over 40 years. And we do it as a biennial event now. So every other year, mm-hmm. it was scheduled to take place last year. And it's usually a springtime event. Of course, May of 2020 was not a good time to be holding large <laughs> events. Right. Um, we hoped to do it then in the fall of 2020. We weren't able to do it then. Finally, we're able to put this event on in the community. And we're excited to be able to do that as a fall a fall event, and it looks like it's going to be a beautiful weekend. So an opportunity to get inside and see some of the beautiful historic homes that we have uh, on the south side of Finley. So all of the homes this year, it's a very walkable tour. All of the homes are on South Main Street or Glendale Avenue. You can easily walk from one house to the other. There are six houses on the tour, um, and they're varied. They date uh, from the 1880s through the late 1920s. And so they showcase a lot of different kinds of architectural styles, interior styles. And I think a lot of people drive past these houses and just wonder, Mm -hmm. you know, what do they look like inside? And sort of if the walls could talk. And so this is your opportunity to be able to see that. Well, that's the thing that I love is when you get inside of some of these historic homes to to think about uh, how previous homeowners or how the original homeowners would have used the home. What would have been in this room? And, you know. Uh, because again, you had servants' quarters in some of these, right? And, absolutely. You know, all of this, so these so. were some of the grandest homes mm-hmm. of their day, and we are able to tell you about the history of the ownership and and who built the houses, and then you're able to see some of the things that the current owners have done to make the house more livable for today. And yeah. so, I think that's another important aspect of this event. We hope to inspire people to be able to become really good stewards of these historic properties, live in them, love them, take care of them, and preserve them for years to come. Yeah, so often uh, we think about uh, renovating uh, a home by gutting it to the studs and starting over, and sometimes that's necessary, but in some of these uh, historic homes, you can really bring in the modern stuff while preserving uh, much of what was there originally and what made the home so special to begin with. Yes, some beautiful details that you'll be able to see in these houses. So the event takes place both Saturday evening, the 9th, and then this Sunday, the 10th. Uh, On Saturday evening, we have a special preview event, limited tickets, wine and hors d'oeuvres served at each home. Um, And those tickets you can only purchase in person at the Historical Museum. Again, limited. They are $50 if you're a member of the museum, $60 if you are a non-member. And then Sunday is really the big tour. Um, Tickets are $15 pre-sale right now. You can purchase them online at our website, HancockHistoricalMuseum.org, or at the museum. And then they are available the day of the tour on the 10th just at the Hancock Historical Museum. They won't be okay. available at any of the houses, but they will be $20 the day of the tour. Okay. Uh, so that is coming up this weekend. Do not miss it. It's Absence makes the heart grow fonder. It was supposed to be last year, so we've built yeah. the uh, suspense. Uh, suspense, yeah. exactly. Uh, classic movie night coming up uh, next week, I guess, right? That's correct. Friday, again, the third Friday of every month at 7 p.m. This program is free and open to the public, and the movie this month will be Arsenic and Old Lace. Very um, uh, appropriate for the uh, month of October. And then the uh, Spooktacular uh, at the end of the month. Right. Another uh, favorite event that we do. This one's really geared towards families and kids. 
Um, it is. It takes place at the museum. It'll be on Saturday, October 23rd. Goes from 5 to 8 p.m. Admission is just $1. And there's a whole slew of crafts, activities for the kids to do, for the families to do. There are refreshments. There are tours of the haunted hall house. We have it decorated for Halloween. So it's really a lot of fun. And there are some stories about the uh, hall house. Yes, we we have some stories. We have done some paranormal investigations of the hall house. Um, supposedly, they get a lot of activity in the attic. Uh, so that is usually the most uh, common question that we receive at the museum is yeah. the house haunted. <laughs> there are some stories. <laughs> um, but then again, it, it wouldn't be a true historic uh place without, without uh, a stories, few stories yeah. <laughs> uh, like that yeah absolutely and this is the season for it um while we uh, have a couple of extra seconds we mentioned uh, members uh, get discounts on a lot of the things from the historic homes tours to the uh, brown bag lunch lectures and many of the other uh, things that you do throughout the year uh, plus of course uh, free admission we've got the holiday season right uh, right around the corner it's a great uh, time to join the museum yeah it's a great time to join the museum or give it as a gift yeah um it's a unique gift and as you mentioned it really does pay for itself if you attend some of the programs that we do on a monthly basis or special mm-hmm. events. In addition to that, it is also a way to support the Hancock Historical Museum. And we are entirely privately funded. We're a nonprofit organization. And so the members help us to keep the doors open and keep things going. Also wanted to ask, uh, because we haven't really had a chance to uh, talk about this uh, a whole lot. I know one of the things that uh, over the years uh, the Historical Museum has prided itself on is the relationship with the schools and education programs and so on. Have you been able to restart that this year uh, post-pandemic? Yes. Um, You know, I think field trips are somewhat limited with some of the school systems, but we also have a lot of county school kids that come in. So between the museum facilities on Sandusky Street and the Little Red Schoolhouse, which we also operate, Mm -hmm. we do have a lot of children coming back through the school systems, um, particularly at the schoolhouse. In a normal year, we would see about a 1,000 kids come through the museum facilities just in the month of May alone. Hmm. So we're hoping by springtime that we will be able to resume a lot of those field trips. But yes, some of them are coming back, and we're so happy to see them. Yeah, that is uh, good news. And again, when we talk about uh, ways to support the uh, museum uh, and the work that you do, it it supports a lot of those programs uh, as well. So teaching the next generation about uh, our history locally. More information on all of these uh, uh, events and activities at your website, right? Yes, HancockHistoricalMuseum.org. Again, uh, Sarah Sisser of the Hancock Historical Museum with us this morning. Sarah, thanks very much. Thank you, Chris. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veteran Services. In Ypsilanti, Michigan, an unidentified man was taken into custody after threatening someone in his home with a butter knife. (laughs) Not the most intimidating threat in the world, but... um, Obviously, the person on the receiving end of his wrath took one look at the weapon and thought, yeah, I can call 911 on this guy. It's no big urgent thing. (laughs) I'd love to hear the 911 call. I got somebody threatening me with a butter knife. Take your time. (laughs) You don't have to you don't have to rush (laughs) Get here. Apparently, the knife waving knife wielding incident happened after an argument uh, somehow went south. Uh, Police were dispatched to the home and arrested the person creating the domestic disturbance. And the report goes on to say that no injuries were reported. Well, (laughs) I guess that kind of goes without saying, but you got to put that in the report anyway. (laughs) 
Elsewhere in the uh, broken news, now just a tip. If you have been on the run, if you have been on the lam, uh, running for the law from the law for nearly two dozen years, maybe, just maybe, sitting front row during a televised Dodgers game is not the best idea. <laughs> but yes, that's the story. U.S. Marshals are asking the public's health in uh, public's help in identifying a uh, L.A. Dodger fan seen on camera during a televised home game because they say he very closely resembles a long-missing fugitive. <laughs> the call for the public's health come uh, the call for the public's help comes as the agency has stepped up the uh, 23-year manhunt for John Ruffo, a swindler who fled in 1998 after being convicted in Virginia of uh, bank fraud to the tune of $353 million. The ongoing manhunt for uh, Ruffo is the subject of season two of the ABC News podcast, Have You Seen This Man? Uh, the man at the Dodger game may be a lookalike, or it may be Mr. Ruffo, who investigators believe has assumed a new identity. Either way, deputies on the case say they would like to know who this was and would like to speak to him. Mr. Ruffo's cousin, Carmine Pascale of New Hampshire, was watching the Dodgers-Red Sox game on television when he said he spotted the familiar-looking man seated four rows behind home plate. So he phoned the tip into the U.S. Marshal. <laughs> oh, my goodness. No love loss in this family. I'm going to turn him in. Uh, the U.S. Marshal... Uh, had placed uh, Mr. Ruffalo on the agency's 15 most wanted list. The ticket holder was unable to be identified as the uh, coveted seat behind home plate had passed through so many hands, you know, in the secondary ticket market. By the time the person who actually attended the game sat in the bleachers, they really didn't uh, have any way of knowing exactly uh, whether it was the original purchaser of the ticket or not. But... Uh, so it's still a bit of a mystery, but <laughs> I got to think it's probably not this guy. I mean, like I said, if you have been on the run from the law, if you've been on the lam for 23 years, sitting front row during a televised baseball game is probably not something, something you would avoid doing. But then again, we've had dumber people in the uh, broken news. So you never know. Um couple of animal stories in the broken news. Animal rescuers in California were called to assist with a tarantula rescue. Uh, apparently, somebody called in to uh, report that there was a tarantula on the roof of a home. Um, but when they arrived, they found the spider was just an old Halloween decoration. The uh, Peninsula Humane Society in California say they actually climbed up on the roof with a plastic enclosure to capture the spider, but quickly realized that it was a fake. They brought it back to their office as a joke, but they note that it has since been discarded. It didn't rehome it. I mean, it is Halloween season after all. But anyway, and uh, a more real life animal rescue. Uh, police in Michigan got a call on Friday about seven baby squirrels at the base of a tree with their tails tangled together. <laughs> Apparently having a tail can be dangerous in the wild. 
Police say this is uh, technically called a scurry of squirrels, and photos show the animals dangerously fused together at the tail. It is thought that it happened shortly after birth. Uh, they, uh, you know, twirling their tails or whatever, got them entangled, and uh, the uh, squirrels ended up on the ground when the nest could no longer hold them. Uh, police say they uh, separated the babies, and I guess they took them to an animal rescue, and they're being rehabbed, and hopefully be returned to the wild sometime soon. So a story with a happy ending. And finally, in the broken news this morning, everyone knows that the monsters can get you if you leave your feet sticking out. And police in the UK uh, actually demonstrated that that is true. During a raid on a home in Derbyshire on Monday, they found a 36-year-old man hiding under a blanket, but not hiding very well because he had his... Feet sticking out. (laughs) He was a robbery uh, suspect in several robberies, as a matter of fact, and he was arrested. Police uh, posted a photo of how they found him on Facebook, noting, if we can find you hiding in the loft, um, if we can find you hiding uh, in the loft, if we will run through the garden fences to arrest you, are we not going to look in the cupboard? (laughs) Would we not recognize you hiding under a blanket (laughs) with your, your feet hanging out? (laughs) <laughs> I'm just going to hide under this blanket. Nobody will see me here. My <laughs> feet hanging out. That is hilarious. Must have been quite a sight. Uh, there you go. That is uh, today's broken news report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Do you have a hard time putting a meal on your table for you and your family? The West Ohio Food Bank can help. If you're struggling with food insecurity, nutritious, wholesome, and shelf-friendly foods are available through the West Ohio Food Bank and our many partner agencies and food pantries. Your family deserves to eat well and to be able to keep your shelves stocked. For food assistance information, just go to our website at wofb.org. This message provided by WFIN. Time now for your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. You've heard the old saying that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And that apparently is true when it comes to tackling tough subjects at school. As according to a new survey of 2,000 parents that was sponsored by the educational site Sphero. Now, this is a non-scientific poll, but it's interesting nonetheless. Uh, They find that 56% of parents say they struggled with math in school. 56%. 51% of kids feel the same way. Uh, 26% of parents said that they did not like science when they were uh, in school. And 25% of kids also find science to be a challenge. So again, very, very Close numbers. English and language arts posed a problem for 21% of parents and 27% of kids. That said, both parents and kids alike felt challenged by subjects that didn't reflect their interests. That's really what it boils down to. They say 84% of parents said that they would have liked school better if it included more interactive activities. Uh, 32% of students said that they grasp concepts better when they are working on lessons like that. And, of course, back in the day, we didn't have interactive lessons, kind of the, at least not the way that they uh, kids have them today. So it is kind of interesting. 
Uh, as for students, 32% said their best day at school involves pairing up with friends for a group project. Uh, even more so than the 19% who thought that seeing uh, TV rolled into the classroom meant a fun class ahead. Remember when we were in school and you know you'd get to get to class and the TV would be there and say, "Oh, we're gonna have a we're gonna watch a video. This would be a cool class." <laughs> Not so much a big deal these days. Maybe it's because uh, video is everywhere these days. I don't know. With the difficulties brought brought about by the pandemic, 70% in this survey, 70% of parents said remote learning has made it more difficult for their children to learn certain subjects, including math, science, and uh, language arts or English. That said, nearly two-thirds of parents say that they have seen their kids spark to a subject that they didn't have an interest in prior to pandemic era learning. So there has been some good come out of this in that it has sparked an interest in something that uh, students maybe didn't give a second thought to before. Time now for the latest in our ongoing Keeping the Faith series. You know, we aren't the only ones who experience trials in our lives. And we aren't the only ones who can take comfort that the Lord is with us in our struggles. Children face many challenges and changes in their young lives, whether it's the first day of school, first day of a new school, the birth of a baby brother or sister and the adjustment that comes with that, the death of a grandparent, the death of a pet, maybe moving to a new neighborhood, going to the doctor or the dentist. Uh, Then there's a whole online component, bullying and Uh, All of the uh, pitfalls that come with our social media lives these days. Well, now a new book based on the parable from Christ uh, about the seed will inspire children to face many of those challenges. John Clemens reports this morning, Keeping the Faith. The Seed Who Was Afraid to Be Planted is a children's rhyming book. By Anthony DeStefano. This is a book about a seed that's afraid to be planted. And I think children can relate to a seed. A seed is very small. To a seed, the whole world around it is big. And of course, it would, it would be afraid to be buried if it could talk. This book is based on uh, Jesus' parables. You know, he told several parables of seeds. Seeds who had a, uh, grains of wheat, mustard seeds that had to fall to the ground and die in order to bear fruit. Stefano wrote the seed who was afraid to be planted from a very different perspective. Wouldn't it be great to write a children's story about um, a seed, the seed that Jesus talked about, but from the perspective of the seed? Because surely children would be able to relate to a fe- the fear of, of, being, of being planted and, and essentially dying. This is a book that helps teach young children about trusting God with their lives. Whether it's a big transition or a small transition, you know, the, the message that we have to instill in children from the earliest age is to trust in God. I mean, this is the great lesson of life, you know, that if we put our trust in this one who gave us life, then he may not take away those problems that we're having, but he'll always get us through them. And so the, I, the really message of this book is, is surrendering to the will of God and trusting in God and having a trust in God that will then give you a, a, a peace that transcends all understanding. The Stefano wants this book to be used to teach children 
about what happens to us. When the seed is planted and is fearful that he's going to die, what happens to him, of course, is that he sprouts and he becomes a tremendous, marvelous tree that overlooks a beautiful shore with millions of mansions. And and the tree uh, becomes a home to animals and birds and rabbits and butterflies and all kinds of fruit and, and leaves. So the tree becomes fruitful and is a source of nourishment to everyone around us. And that, of course, is analogous to what happens to us. The Seed Who Was Afraid to Be Planted is a book to be enjoyed by those who read it and by those who had it read to them. If you're a young child, the story is very, very simple. A seed is afraid to be planted. He's planted and he becomes a tree and he has a happy ending. I think children can relate to that and they can get something out of that. I think that if a child is uh, a little bit younger and uh, an adult reads the book to them, then it's even a more ideal situation because then, then it's a teaching situation. Then it's interactive. It, it, it's both for children on their own and for adults to read. The Seed Who Was Afraid to Be Planted is a 32-page book featuring playful rhymes with beautiful illustrations. It is a book to help everyone cope with fears before they grow out of control. What we take for granted can be a traumatic experience for a child. Moving to a new neighborhood, first day of school, going to the doctors, going to the dentist, and then, of course, real things to grieve over, like you know the death of a pet or the death of a grandparent. Any kind of big change is something that a child does not know how to deal with and represents a source of anxiety and fear, and that could grow and fester and manifest itself later on in insecurities and things that we can carry on with us till we die. The Stefano believes that fear should be confronted, and it doesn't matter the reader's stage of life when they face those fears. We don't deal with this problem. Fear doesn't go away. Uh, it festers, it grows, it mutates, and it, becomes, uh, it can become a very long-term insecurity. It can become phobia. It manifests itself in many uh, dangerous kinds of ways. So I've always wanted to write a book uh, for children especially because you, you want to help them at the beginning before fear comes into their life and just wreaks havoc as they get older. Here's how to get in touch with Anthony Stefano, the author of The Seed Who Was Afraid to Be Planted. I have a website, and I'm sorry in advance for my long Italian name, <laughs> but it's www.anthonydestefano.com, A-N-T-H-O-N-Y-D-E-S-T-E-F-A-N-O, anthonydestefano.com, and, and if you go there, you'll see, oh, I think it's about 20 books now for adults and, and children. Christian books, all of them. This is John Clemens reporting. And that will put a wrap on our podcast for today. Thanks to all of our guests for joining us on the program. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage, of course. That is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow... The cutthroat nature of the current real estate market has been well documented. It is a climate that can be intimidating for would-be first-time homebuyers, but relax, we have all the advice you need. Until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.